self-compassion is not an optional part of the recovery journey from my vantage point, in my opinion, because I mean, you're not in your head. There's a lot of times, and I get this as a person in pain, when I'm working with someone, they uh, seem to have the sense of, can we do that later? Like, why are you, (laughs) that sounds sweet. It's like be all like kind and loving to myself. I'm literally dying here. I'm in 10 out of 10 pain. So can we do that later? And like in their heads, they're probably like, I never, I don't know, I'm not interested at all, but let's just like punt this. It's not an optional part of the recovery journey. The way that you're showing up and fighting against your symptoms is generally how you're showing up and fighting against yourself. Like the way we relate to our symptoms is the way that we relate to everything else. You can't solve for one and not solve for the other. So it's in a nutshell, sure, self-compassion. There's a lot, there, there's some people might be like, oh, for that a million times. Yeah, you're going to keep hearing it because it's not going away. It's not optional. Hey there, I'm Anna Holtzman, and this is From Chronic Pain to Passion. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and coach who helps passionate creatives like you learn how to heal from chronic pain and other symptoms so you can reclaim your energy and live the creative life of your dreams. In my past life, I was a disillusioned video editor working in reality TV and struggling with chronic migraine for over 10 years. But after I discovered the mind-body methods that I'll share with you on this podcast, I recovered from the chronic cycle and got back my creative spark. And I want that for you too. So let's get into it. In today's episode, I got to chat with someone whose work I've admired and been influenced by since my very first training in mind-body medicine. That person is chronic pain expert Christy Weepy, and I knew it would be a pleasure speaking with her, but our conversation surpassed even my expectations. It was such a delight. Christy is a psychotherapist specializing in the treatment of chronic pain anxiety, and depression, and she's the founder of a clinic called the Better Mind Center. Christy has been a key collaborator on the development and research of the pain reprocessing therapy treatment modality. She lectures nationally on psychotherapeutic interventions to treat chronic pain, and she's committed to cross-disciplinary collaboration between mental health and physical medicine. Christy is also a recovered chronic pain patient herself, and she says that the healing process was so profoundly transformational for the quality of her life that she has dedicated her career to supporting others through their recoveries. There's a lot more to Christy's work in this field that we'll get into during the interview, and something that I so appreciate about her is that she's an influential voice in this field. And we often look to influential voices to tell us the absolute truth about their topic of expertise. But what Christy shares is that staying curious and open is not just essential to healing. It's an essential part of being a practitioner who supports others in healing as well. Christy, Welcome. Thank you so much for being here and for making the time. I'm really and truly so excited to be getting to meet you and to to chat with you. 
Oh my gosh, the feelings are so completely mutual. Thank you for allowing me to be here. I've been super jazzed to get to chat with you. So thank you. And so it just blows me away to hear you say that because I've been following your work since long before I started working in the field of mind-body because I was first introduced to your work when I was early on in my recovery from chronic migraine. And I was like, I had recently found the Curable app and I was like, this is amazing. I need to learn everything, you know, a typical like TMS personality. I was like, I need to dive in, read every single book and learn everything. And that led me to um, attending a live, I think it was a three-day workshop led by Dr. Schubner, and you were one of the presenters there in Detroit. It was like beyond pain management, I think. And it was in real, it was actually in Detroit, right? That was yes. a real life. It was IRL pre-COVID. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. And um, there were several presenters there. You were the only woman, and I was captivated and just like so happy to see a woman presenting on this topic. And plus your presentation was amazing. So I was instantly a fan of yours. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I remember that conference. And yes, there is a certain kind of buzzy amazement when two females are or a group of females are connecting in this space. So this is fun. And that's that's a really cool backstory. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. All right. So we're, I'm already going off on like what a fan I am of yours, but for listeners that um, may not already be familiar with your work in this field, um, can you share what it is that you do and who you help? Happy to. So um, my name is Christy Leapy. I'm a psychotherapist and a pain coach, and I specialize in the mind body treatment of chronic pain, chronic symptoms, and then potentially any underlying and associated anxiety and depression. Primarily, I work one-on-one in a therapeutic setting, or historically, that's where I have spent most of my time. I love working with these clients. I feel very resonant with them much of the time. I am sure you're not in your head. I'm sure you can agree. A lot of us are in this space because we relate to our clients because we've been in their shoes. So I've done lots of one-on-one work. Over the past couple of years, I've been focusing more on research and development of the pain reprocessing therapy model, which is where I camp out sort of my starting place with clients. And then also the past couple of years, I've started a group practice called the Better Mind Center, where a bunch of us clinicians specialized in this together, which is just dream come true for me because I can nerd out week in and week out with people who never tire of talking about this stuff, which is basically one of my main goals for starting a group. Let's keep this ball moving. So I feel super lucky to have them. They're rock stars. That's amazing. I feel like, so I don't have colleagues that I work with in person or, but for me, Instagram has been that. And I've gotten to connect with other people who nerd out about this all the time. And it really is like, it's just so fun connecting. Um, You alluded to this briefly um, in what you already shared, but can you share a bit more about what it was that led you into this work that you do? Happy to. So like so many of us, yourself included, I believe I got into this work because I was in so much pain myself and did not know why. And this was about age 20, 21, maybe when it really ramped up. But again, like a lot of us, when we think back through our childhoods, I can see myself as 
the one who was always sick or the one who was always run down, or I can kind of trace it even farther back. But when I was in senior year of undergraduate, I started getting different pains kind of all over. I really injured my hamstring. And from there, it was like, we're off to the races. You injured your hamstring. Now we're basically going to make every other part of your body feel like it is falling apart. Made no sense to me. Like so many of us, I had like 12 different doctors, one for each body part that hurt. Felt very much like Humpty Dumpty. I felt like a 90-year-old people. And that was like really propagated by the physicians. They're like, your body must just be so fragile. Your body must just be so old. Like, I cannot tell you how many people told me my body was old. I was like, okay, but I'm 20. Wow. What's going to happen when I'm like 50? Are you going to tell me that my body's still going to be circling this message? My body is like twice my age. So lots of fear, lots of confusion. And through luck and serendipity and great gratitude, I went, I was at, at USC is where I was getting a, eventually my graduate degree. So this pain started an undergraduate continued right on into grad school. And that was when I met Alan Gordon, who's a name I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. He runs the pain psychology center. That was his main gig at the time. And I bumped like probably literally, I literally quite literally ran into him in the hallway and it didn't take long for him to recognize like, Oh, this girl has, <laughs> this girl has what we treat. She's walking around like Humpty Dumpty with all of my different braces and my butt pillow for my butt pain, like a bag full of medication and a heating pad on my neck. And very gently, he started suggesting some reading and long story short, I ended up interning for his clinic in my final clinical internship and had this wild year of applying all the techniques to myself, presenting them to clients and just great year of healing, of growth of imposter syndrome that just never stopped specializing in it because it it quite literally changed my life and the quality of my life so much. Yeah. Gosh, you know, there, I mean, there's so many things that stand out about the story you shared and many parts I can relate to, many parts that are different from my story too. Um, but one of the things that really strikes me that I can relate to and I hear from a lot of other practitioners is that there's not really, it's not like, and and then I recovered. And then there was this period of time where I developed confidence and expertise. And then I became a clinician. It's like one kind of like just morphs and bleeds into the other, right? Yes. And I, I really appreciate that you named that because I, we, of course, we want to be checking with ourselves. Like, do I feel ready and confident? And like, is it, um, is it within my scope to help this person? Of course, we want to be able to confidently attend our clients, but it, it, recovery isn't like a place that you arrive to. So I, it's okay at any point. Like we might be out of chronic pain, but I have flare-ups. I flare up to all kinds of things of pain, of different symptoms of anxiety. And so and it's not like I arrived and then was ready as arrived recovered person to help clients got out of chronic pain. But to this day, like stuff pops up. Yeah, I I I really appreciate that we're talking about that together because um it's something that a lot of my clients come in with say you know saying like oh I made a bunch of progress but now I'm having a flare up so I must have like failed or not be healed or you know whatever um and I always make a point to share with them that I experience flare ups too. <laughs> right right right. And that that 
that's not the goal. I don't view the goal as never having your body talk to you again. It gets really important vessel communication. I, I mean, I could go off on that forever, but long story short, I kind of love when my body gives me a sensation at this point, which is not the same as being in chronic pain. Being in chronic pain is the absolute worst very little benefit to that on a day-to-day basis. But nowadays flare-ups are super useful for me. Yeah, absolutely. There's such learning opportunities. Um, I want to ask you about what during your recovery experience, um, what specific tools and techniques wound up being the most helpful and what are the ones that you also find most helpful with clients? And side note, I have never really talked about nor had a guest talk on this podcast about pain reprocessing therapy. So that's like a whole unexplored as yet topic on this podcast. Oh, neat. Well, then let me give a, if it's okay, a a leader's digest version of what the framework is. Um, So pain reprocessing therapy is, of course, not the only effective psychotherapeutic treatment of chronic pain, but it's one of the ones that there's a lot of buzz around right now. There's a lot of research around it right now. And it's a set of psychological interventions that help a client reappraise the sensations in their body, hopefully reappraise them as safe or non-dangerous, and then helps a client respond to the sensation both cognitively and somatically using your nervous system in a calm way. And the more that we're infusing a neutral response up against this super activating, unpleasant sensation, the more that we're helping clients move out of the pain fear cycle. The main, um, like the technique that people talk about the most when it comes to pain reprocessing therapy is somatic tracking. Somatic tracking is a form of mindfulness that's targeted to the sensation, the unpleasant sensation that you're experiencing. And I keep saying pain, but for anyone who's listening where that word doesn't quite resonate, pain might also be itching, tingling, fatigue, dizziness, tinnitus, tinnitus, jury's still out for me. I will never understand how to say that word. (laughs) (laughs) Fill in the blank. If it's a chronic symptom that's last longer than six months, somatic tracking is bringing your attention to that sensation and working to downregulate your nervous system while attending to the unpleasant sensation. I share that piece of somatic tracking as kind of the headline intervention, uh, at least somatically of PRT, because that is not my, that is not the one that helped me the most get out of pain. And I share that on purpose because if somatic tracking is really jiving with you, that's awesome. It is a really effective technique when it's a really effective technique for any given person or any given person at that given moment of their recovery, it is not the only way to achieve some semblance of calm or down regulation in your system. I personally don't love it for myself at this stage. Like I've used it. It has a benefit. There are times when I still use it on a week to week basis, even now maintenance wise, like I'm not pumped on being like, I'm going to sit and like really try to find that unpleasant sensation and lean into it. Like there are other ways I like down regulating my system more than that. And that's cool and fine. So you do not have to be like rock on somatic tracking or bust, even though that's a really prominent and effective for some tool of PRT. 
I am so glad to be talking about this with you because the point you're making is such an important one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure. This could happen with any technique. I'm obviously speaking from my angle and yeah, that's one that comes up a lot in my bubble, but this could happen with any technique, people feeling pressure around like this is it. This was it for this program or for the, these people it really worked for. And it's not going, not everything needs to work for every person. Yeah. And what are some of the techniques that you just happen to personally prefer or go to more? One of the most effective for me when I was actively in pain is one of the simplest. And it was, uh, I call it messages of safety, specifically in response to noticing when my brain was gravitating to fear or a fear iteration. So frustration, pressure, criticism, intensity. It wasn't until I learned that pain was a danger signal and the more threat input we're putting in, the more pain output we're going to have. I didn't didn't know that before. No one, until I met Alan and like read some books on this, I had literally no idea that was a thing. So once it was pointed out to me that, hey, likely your nervous system is way jacked up right now. Watch for when your brain gravitates to fear it was every five seconds. It was like every five. And a lot of it was about the pain, right? Like, oh my God, it still hurts. When is this going to get better? When is that appointment? Why is this not working? When am I going to get better? What is it? What are people talking about that they ever recovered from this? So a lot of it was about the pain. Not all of it. My brain gravitated to fear across the board. Yeah. Just pressure, criticism, judgment. So super important for me to notice that as a pattern, somewhat of an addictive pattern. And then upon noticing it, some sort of neutralizing message. This is perhaps the most vanilla version. It does not resonate with everyone at the time it resonated with me just to tell myself you're safe, you're safe in this moment, that you're safe. And then pairing that with some kind of physical regulation, which could have been as simple as 3D breaths. I love that. Thank you so, so much for sharing that with us, Christy. And I love that also that you named that like somatic tracking and pain reprocessing therapy have a lot of buzz about them right now. Like there is a, a a book out there, Alan Gordon's book, The Way Out, which is fantastic. It's gotten a lot of press, which is amazing. Um, PRT has gotten a lot of press, which is fantastic. Also, when anything gets a lot of press and a lot of buzz, like, you know, we all get clients coming into us saying like, I've heard about this thing and I think like that has to be the thing that works for everyone and it's got to work for me. And it's just not how these things always play out. Um, I've gone through my own humbling experience of the thing that was kind of like, you know, just changed everything for me was expressive writing, journaling. And I first learned that through Nicole Sachs and her work has a lot of buzz about it. And, you know, it's great for a lot of people. It's not for everyone, it turns out. And, you know, early on, I was really trying to push this, I have to admit, on clients. And for some, it was great and really helpful. And as I discovered and was humbled by, like, it just was not everybody's jam and trying to push something when it's like not your jam is just completely at cross purposes with developing feelings of safety, it turns out. <laughs> yeah. That was so well put. I could not agree more. 
Um, so I want to ask you about, you've had a really, really interesting career so far, and it's continuing to, to develop into new areas. Um, but you've already worked in a whole variety of different contexts. You have played a key role, as you mentioned, at the Pain Psychology Center and in developing um, pain reprocessing therapy. You have done work with United Health, mm -hmm. um, and now you're running your own clinic. And I'm so interested to hear about like what that journey has been like and also how your approach and your understanding to this whole like chronic symptom recovery work has evolved over the course of time and being in different contexts. Mm -hmm. It's a fun question to think back on. I will say one through line, there have been lots of shifts and it's been fun to pivot and I learned something with each new role or iteration, what have you. But one through line is I've had such good mentors and I'm super grateful to them. So I'll name some of them as I share about the journey, starting with Alan Gordon at the Pain Psychology Center to be able to grow along him. I, I'm forever indebted to his clinical expertise and how much he imprinted on me in that way. I learned so much, but he and I got to really ping around during my tenure there. And we were kind of two peas in a pod. We were both so just obsessed with this idea of getting these interventions of pain reprocessing therapy down on paper and making them packageable enough that things like a book or press would lift off because the chronic pain space is thinking about mind-body medicine. It's, it encompasses a lot and it's hard to sell, sell. And I use the word sell because we're kind of up against mainstream medicine, right? Like it's hard to sell efficacy without making it something that's packageable. So that has benefits and that has downsides, right? So we had just, we had a lot of fun developing that in tandem with other people um, like Howard Schubiner and lots of other work that came before PRT. Again, I'm only speaking about my angle. We could broaden this in a million different ways. Um, and he and I got to do the Boulder back pain study together, which was the first randomized controlled study of PRT. And that was like fun and intense and a lot. <laughs> the study was for like outcomes purposes, really successful. So we felt like this is working. PRT is doing something. And like, people are interested in understanding the way that it works. So I left PPC about uh, around the time that the Boulder back pain study left, but in large part, I left because we, I was moving to Vegas with United or under the direction of United health group, because this study was so, um, I don't know, buzzy. I don't know another word. Like it caught people's attention because the outcomes were strong. 98% of people in the pain report processing therapy group improved 66% of them were pain-free or virtually pain-free. And like that catches an insurance company's ear because chronic pain is a nationwide worldwide epidemic that costs so much money on interventions that don't often work treatments that don't often work. So United health group set up this, um, it was like a research project in the wild. It was not a randomized controlled trial. We had so much flexibility and another mentor I am, forever indebted to Howard Schubiner, he and I got to team up with other people in Las Vegas to say, let's bring pain reprocessing therapy to life. So they essentially <laughs> infiltrate a pre-existing pain management clinic. We weren't, it wasn't like, 
here's a building and a bunch of doctors and design everything. It was you're coming into a pain, think traditional, traditional pain management, people getting injections, opioids, and try to build into that program, a mind body medicine arm with a PR, like a PRT push. I just have to say that sounds really challenging. (laughs) It was, I just can imagine the pushback. It was wild for so many different reasons. I'm so grateful for the opportunity, but I mean, let first of all, there's always pushback when we introduce something new. Yeah. there were physicians kind of running, doing their own thing, right? Like you have to respect something that's already in existence. So yeah. we did our best, but despite the logistical challenges and the reason I'm sharing all of this as it relates to my, where my path and how things have changed, like this was a eyes open lens opening moment for me because we're coming from Boulder where the, it's a randomized controlled trial and each of the, the, the participants have a lot of similarities that allowed for PRT to work. Mm. That's not the only reason why it worked, but this absolutely is a reason why PRT worked because the population we were serving was receptive and capable of taking on PRT. These were largely um, highly educated, college educated people. Think about the type of people who can come in like, hey, your, your therapy is starting. You need to come twice a week for four weeks. So imagine the bandwidth roominess that that take just just that will kind of speak to the population of people so they had whatever they had a job that was flexible enough or that paid that might have paid them enough or they had childcare set up you know like it's just enough bandwidth to allow for that and most of them are white and you're like higher-ish income and, and college educated and again they have a certain like, level of privilege that allows for the space that allows for the that level of safety the time and space yeah. to fully participate in something like that. That's not the case for Vegas. And that wasn't the case for this um, clinic. So I, this could have, this could have shifted since then, but at the time Nevada was last on, it was fit number 50 out of 50. It was actually number 51 out of 51. I have no idea what the 51st was. We're talking about the United States. (laughs) I don't know what they were counting, but I found this article that was like, Nevada is number 51 out of 51 last for mental health care. Wow. And that was both in terms of, if I'm remembering correctly, correctly, the severity of the mental health issues and the lack of resources to support those issues. So now we're working with a population of people who is in tremendous amounts of pain. We thought a lot of it was neural circuit pain or learned pain, TMS. Um, their pain was really intense. Don't get me wrong. But if they had to list their top five stressors, chronic pain is not going to make the list. They were dealing with immense amounts of life stressors, circumstantial stressors, other compounded physical health problems. And it felt like doing PRT in a battlefield. It was like, how am I meant to talk to this person about why don't we break down the way that your brain gravitates to pain or gravitates to fear as it waits to pain. And this person was like, I think I'm going to be evicted next week. I'm in an abusive partnership. I don't know if I'm going to like have a, I lost my job six months ago. I don't know how to afford rent. Like it was so not Prior, how could it be prioritized by them? They didn't have that gift or privilege of bandwidth. And to put it frank, like to put it bluntly, PRT didn't. Well, I don't even think we did PRT. I could say PRT didn't work, but also I don't even think I was. I wasn't using PRT. I was like, why, why would I just need to help this person find any amount of grounding 
or ability to achieve any, any win. I'll take anyone, any amount of self-compassion, any amount of grounding. So I love Vegas being like, I've been so focused on PRT working and, and where it works that I wasn't asking enough of when does this not work? Who does it not work for? What do we do when PRTs, like we run through the main tenets of PRT and someone's still really hurting? So I never thought PRT was a be all end all, but the beginning part of my career was just focused on it. And I had a laser focus on it. And a big part of transitioning my private practice into a group practice when the Vegas project was done was wanting a group of collaborative clinicians that sure, we use the language, we use a common language around pain. I don't, we don't want to confuse clients. We want to have something that binds us together and PRT can bind us together. But I want people with different lenses, different perspectives, people trained in different modalities, people who specialize in different diagnoses or identities, like clinicians who have different things that are important to them. Yeah. And that's that was my biggest hope when I started Better Mind Center. And I, it's the it is the clinicians there that make it what it is. They're fantastic. And the last mentor I want to mention, her name is Dr. Lilia Graue. She's a physician and psychotherapist out of Mexico City. And she um, when we kind of bumped up with her, she's on our medical advisory board. She has so much to say about embracing the, uns- the uncertainty and the muddiness and the gray area of when things don't fit or don't fit perfectly, or when um, a treatment doesn't work, why that is. And instead of putting the onus on the client, like, well, this this, this worked in Boulder. <laughs> this worked for a lot of people. Somatic tracking works. And you must be doing something wrong. Embracing that as a learning opportunity around, well, like there, there's a, there's a reason for all of this. So let's work together on it. And longest story ever, I think to answer your question, how my outlook has changed is this comfort and excitement around the more I know, the more I don't know. And that's awesome. Like I'm loving that right now. Wow. I, I am so electrified by what you're sharing. I'm I'm just like, I feel so fortunate to be having this conversation with you. It's so, so interesting. And it makes so much sense that, you know, like humans have there's so many different kinds of life circumstances and for some the the you know we talk about in this mind body work we talk about how symptoms and pain are like danger signals from the nervous system mm-hmm. and for some people at some times at some you know periods of life the loudest danger signal might be the symptom itself it might be the pain or the discomfort while for other folks or, you know, at other different periods of time or whatever, there might be other danger signals that are a heck of a lot louder. Yes, that is, that is a simple and it feels really accurate way of understanding it. And again, like I don't, pain sucks. I hated being in chronic pain. So I'm only going to speak about myself in this moment because this might not resonate with other people in chronic pain, but it, I did have the privilege of my pain being the loudest thing in my life when it was the loudest thing in my life. Like there's, there's some benefit to that because I could focus on when I had a healing focus, I could put all that energy. I mean, I didn't have a lot of energy. It was hurting, but I could put all of it into recovery. And that felt in retrospect, maybe not at the time, but in retrospect, that was a, that was a privilege of my recovery journey. You know, I, I'm just, really, really curious. And I don't, 
you know, expect that there are like clear pat answers to this, of course. But what are, I don't know, what are some of the discoveries that you made in Vegas about like what worked for chronic pain with that population? What other approaches took precedence or, yeah. Yes. Well, you alluded to this really beautifully a moment ago that in when I believe we were talking about the Boulder, pop, the population of people at the Boulder Back Pain Study, safety was not that far out of reach externally or internally. So their external circumstances, by and large, is obviously individual differences, allowed for some level of support and stability. And a lot of our patients had some memory of what safety feels like. They might not have felt it that day, but it wasn't like I have, when you say the word safety, Christy, I know what you mean. I have felt that before, or I could imagine feeling it. Yeah. That is not true of all people. And it wasn't true of most people that we were working with in Vegas. Externally, by and large, nothing felt safe. There were just so many systems of oppression and um, just a super low socioeconomic status in the whole area, coupled with kind of oppression from all angles, including within the medical system and their, their, the compounding physical and mental health stress. So circumstantially, these people were not safe. And then again, internally, this idea of, oh, we're going to help you achieve some semblance of safety in your body. It was like, my body is not a safe place. So when you want me to have all this focus on my body and curate this safety, I don't know what you're saying was the one of the primary differences. And what, like, what did you wind up focusing on? And I have to just say, like, I, I can imagine I'm just, you know, I'm thinking back to like my own clinical internship when I was in grad school and I was working in a, in a clinic that was a, um, a substance abuse clinic and most of the folks who were there were mandated to be there and were experiencing very very difficult life circumstances economically and otherwise and you know i just remember feeling at times like what it what actually is my role here like i think there there are other services other than mental health that need to be coming first here yeah yes i had that i'm so glad you shared that i had that thought so many times in vegas just this when I got wrapped up in it, it felt like this despair, honestly, like a deep sense of hopelessness. And I, I remember telling myself so many times, like this person needed help three decades ago. And there have been so many traumas since that point, And their health is so bad. What the heck am I possibly going to impact? Like, sh- that speaks to the need for systematic change, first of all. Um, but if I could lean into, well, I do have an hour with them right now. And when I could get myself into that place, a lot of the work was focused on can anything between me and this human might not, let's take the word safety out of it. Can we aim for a little bit of connection to each other, to self? Can we aim for a little bit of compassion to each me towards the client? A lot of times client towards me. And then to ourselves, can we, let's, is there anything that feels calmer? Let's say we can't feel calm. Can we feel 10% calmer? So it was just, it wasn't, um, 
And that to me is not lowering the, that's not like a bad goal. That's like lowering the expectations. Like, oh, we can't do what we came here. This is what we were presented with. This is what's achievable. This is this person's real life. I had some amazing moments with people being, for example, being kind to themselves for the first time ever. And that felt like an act of great triumph and resistance, honestly, with everything that they were up against. I'm so moved to hear that. And there's a lot in there that I relate to, not only as a practitioner, but also as, you know, like as a human that has my own pain journey. I as well, like I've had a ton of privilege on being able to focus on pain when that was a big thing in my life as like the primary thing to deal with. Um, And even so, like, I feel like my my own personal pain journey shifted tremendously when I was able to change my my goal or my focus from being about pain reduction to being about how can I work on my own connection with myself? How can I bring more kindness into my connection with myself? And you know what I found is that when I shifted that focus, away from reducing symptoms, that's when symptoms reduced. I'm I'm curious if you saw any of that in um, this work in Vegas. Yeah. So first of all, I just got goosebumps when you were saying that and it resonates with me really strongly. And yes, that was uh, hopeful and uh, motivating when we looked at the pain scores because we were tracking, we were tracking their pain scores over time because there were a, a quite a few clients that I worked with where in my mind, I was like, I threw pain techniques out the window. And we focused on, again, on some some amount of connection or some amount of compassion. And then looking at the metrics being like, yeah, that stuff still works. Like that's achieving downregulation through different means that are accessible to that person at that time. It goes back to what we were saying about somatic tracking, like we were doing somatic tracking with those clients. That was not could not, that would be offensive, honestly, to imagine implementing that at that time. But that doesn't mean that it was impossible to impact their pain levels. I'm so, I'm, I get chills hearing that. And also like, you know, just as, as a clinician who like, like many people who get into this work and probably many people in general, you know, I can have my own imposter syndrome at times. I can like, question like what is what I'm doing really helpful is this what I should be doing should I be using fancier techniques you know and like what I've found the further that I get into doing this work is I've worked with folks for whom the fancy techniques have been really helpful right and I've worked with folks for whom like just nothing nothing in terms of like quote unquote the techniques was getting us anywhere and and it was just like turning into this battle almost with like the techniques aren't working and all this frustration yeah, yeah. right and I, I found it's like just hanging out with a person and exuding kindness mm-hmm. is sometimes not only the best medicine but like the only medicine that's going to be accepted yes yes and maybe not a medicine that they've ever been a part of before or maybe it's a distant right like that one hour of their week might be the only time they're receiving that and able to practice it within themselves 
Yeah. I had no idea that this is where our conversation was going to lead us to. I I love it so much. Um, I want to ask another question, which is, um, so I called this podcast from chronic pain to passion. And the reason I called it that is because through my own journey and through, you know, having the privilege of walking alongside others on their journey, one of the things that I've noticed, in addition to this, like turning from the symptom focus to the self-kindness focus, is that it seems to be a thing that as we get further along on the journey, it stops being so much about symptom reduction. And it seems to be about this like opening up that happens. And it's like can be an opening up to a creative passion, to an inner truth, to like a sharing our voice with the world, to feeling like we're authentically connected with our purpose. I I know that that has to be the case for you because, you know, I see the work you're doing and I'm curious how you might relate to that idea personally. I'm obsessed with this question. I love, I was uh, hoping that this would be presence and believing that it would because of the name of your podcast, which I love, by the way, it's such a spot on an exciting theme um, and pattern that we see play out. So I thought a little bit about this and, I would say my, my passion is helping people, walking with people as they expand their ability to feel the full spectrum of their emotional experience. And okay, this, I'm going to be a little bit dramatic for the next couple of minutes, but I flare for drama is something that's followed me, so I'm just leaning into it. I think in my real life have somewhat of an intentional practice or awareness of the finite nature of being alive. Like at some point, the grains of sand in my hourglass are going to run out. And I don't actually know how many grains of sand I've been gifted. And I want to feel all the things that I can feel while I can feel them. And when I was in pain, my emotional experience was this big. Like everything that I felt was fear and frustration or some flavor thereof. And it was from here to here. Tiny for those who can't see. Yes. Tiny. Thank you. Tiny. And that, again, that's, that was an an awful experience. I was not choosing it. It wasn't conscious, but there was some protective mechanism to it because so long as my emotional experience was that tiny, it was protective against other bigger and sometimes scarier feelings. So I sure I felt a lot of fear. I felt a lot of frustration, but I wasn't feeling immense, exhilarating joy. And I wasn't feeling true, honest despair or heartbreak because my emotional spectrum was really tight. And I remember I did choir in high school. I did like all the nerdy. Well, I love, I'll call it nerdy now, but I was still really loved it. I did choir in high school and there was, I will never forget this moment. We were rehearsing one night, some song that I'll never remember. And our choir teacher just like looked quite disappointed. And we finished this song, not kind of quiet and shook his head. And he said, you're piano and your forte sound nearly identical. 
that's no way to sin and that's no way to live. Whoa. Damn, that was harsh to be confronted with. No, exactly. It was like everyone got silent. He was like, your pianissimo needs to be the quietest, gentlest note that you've ever uttered for your double forte to mean anything. And that has always, always stuck with me. And from that point on, granted, it took me over a decade to really learn how to integrate it. I'm still learning all the time. I, I became really drawn to this idea of living on the full spectrum of our emotional experiences. I want my lows to feel low so that my highs can feel high. Like I want to just feel it. And again, no one wants to be in chronic pain, but there is a bio, I think like a biological human preference for contained known experiences and contained known threat. And when you're in pain, you could spend your whole day bouncing around in your mind about the pain. It's a very tight box where all nearly all of your thoughts can be contained to this known experience. It's not a pleasant known experience, but it's known and it's awful and it's protective against the wider unknown. So I think that's my passion is helping people connect with themselves, trust themselves enough to venture off into the vulnerability of like every every color on their emotional palette. Wow. I, it's so amazing getting to have these conversations with each other, right? Because it's like hearing your story, it just like opens up so much for me. I had two powerful memories pop up when you were telling your high school story. I was like, whoa, I kind of experienced my own version of something maybe similar like what I remembered is that there was a moment, well, there were two moments. One, when I was in elementary school and a teacher in the hallway said, you're always smiling. And I felt like I was caught. I was like, oh gosh, this person has seen through my mask. Oh my gosh. Right? Like, like nobody's always happy. Right. But I guess I had this smile always plastered on my face. And then another moment when I was in high school, I showed uh, an essay I had written to my favorite English teacher thinking he'd be really impressed. And his response was, you need to, you need to like write swear words. Like he wanted to kind of like shake me up because everything was so, I guess, perfectionistic. And again, I felt this like incredible shame in that moment like he somehow saw through me and I thought I was fooling everyone with this like one note of like I'm always okay wow and you were so young yeah hopefully that ingrained for you but that is like such you know one way I think to describe the the like mind body symptom pattern is just like containing everything so tightly none of us are really that one note on the inside yeah yeah, I really appreciate that framing. We aren't. We really aren't. We might have learned to be. It might be safer to be. We might have good reason. We all, we all have good reasons for learning that as a coping strategy. And it is scary to play every note. But I want to. I just want to learn how. And I'm so. That's not like a, I'm done. I've done it. Like I'm. There are so many times every week where I feel it. Like, okay, this, this is a moment where I could act out of limitation or act out of fear. This is a moment I could practice. And it's a lot of practice. 
in a nutshell, because I'm sure this could take like a whole other episode to talk about, but how has this ongoing process of like expanding into all of the notes in your repertoire, how has it changed your life in tangible ways? I mean, I we've talked quite a bit about your career and how that's evolved and grown, like thinking about relationships, family, that whole range of things. Yes. Um, being able to, and again, this goes, but I'm so glad you asked this because it's bouncing, it's bumping back on this idea of I am at a point where I can be really grateful for when my body talks, when my pain flares up lots of times at this point, it means at work, it could mean you need to slow down. You need to recenter. You're just doing too much, but I think it's probably relatable to a lot of us, but in my personal life, it often means you are, um, you're acting out of a place of like old preserving connection instead of acting to preserve your value or your boundary or your need, which I think a, a, happens to a lot of us when we're growing, we're biologically designed to make, to crave connection, to need connection, to want to maintain connection. So my pain sometimes will speak up when in any relationship, really any relationship, this could be a friendship, this could be with my partner, this could be my family relationships where my pain will start speaking because I am acting on a fear like, oh my gosh, I might, if I speak up for myself, I might temporarily lose connection, lose attachment. And that pain is encouraging me to remember I'm at a point in my life where I can survive even if, even if this upsets, and sometimes it doesn't even, right? So much of it's in our head, but even if this person is upset or has a different point of view or doesn't like that I'm setting a boundary or doesn't like that I'm setting no, I can survive even if and even though. And so my pain is kind of pushing me to choose my value, choose my boundary, choose my need, as opposed to kind of out of reflex, choosing to maintain the connection. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it really brings out a theme that not surprisingly comes up a lot in the conversations on this podcast, this theme of like the social fear of losing connection. And it it seems, I mean, I don't I, I don't know if this is true, but it it seems to me that so often the danger signal that is triggering chronic symptoms is not the type of danger signal of like there's a bear chasing me and I need to run. It's more like if I run away from the bear, other people are gonna be mad at me. <laughs> yes. That's such a good way of describing it. That's- <laughs> It's like I I need to actually run away from a bear and nobody wants me to. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is so spot on. Um as we come close to concluding this amazing conversation that I wish could go on forever. Um I want to ask you this question which is if you at this particular moment in your ongoing evolution have a soapbox message that you're passionate about sharing through the work that you do, what might that message be? Okay. So I know there's a lot of talk about self-compassion out there. And I think that that is evolving. I think when self-compassion, this again, could just be what I'm inputting and what I'm saying, but I think self-compassion for a while was like, you're going to take a mental health day. You're going to go take a bubble bath or whatever. I do think it's evolving into things like setting boundaries and um, speaking up for yourself or knowing what your limits are or what have you. But my soap, so all this is to say, I know some self-compassion is out there. My soapbox message remains 
self-compassion is not an optional part of the recovery journey from my vantage point, in my opinion, because I mean, you're not in your head. There's a lot of times, and I get this as a person in pain, when I'm working with someone, they seem to have the sense of, can we do that later? Like, why yes. are you up this? <laughs> that sounds sweet. It's like be all like kind and loving to myself. I'm literally dying here. I'm in 10 out of 10 pain. So can we do that later? And like in their heads, they're probably like, I'm never, I don't know, I'm not interested at all, but let's just like punt this. It's not an optional part of the recovery journey. The way that you're showing up and fighting against your symptoms is generally how you're showing up and fighting against yourself. Like the way we relate to our symptoms is the way that we relate to everything else. You can't solve for one and not solve for the other. So it's in a nutshell, sure. Self-compassion. There's a lot other, there's some people might be like, oh, for that a million times. Yeah. You're going to keep hearing it because it's not going away. It's not optional. For those who are not seeing this as video, I'm just <laughs> dying laughing over here. Thank you for that amazing message. Um, and I'm dying laughing because I'm just hearing like so many different examples of clients who have said to me, I, I know, Anna, I, I know, I know you mean well, and you're always talking about being gentle with myself, but dot, 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 you know, but whatever. And, okay. and my response is always like, I think it's really interesting that there's a but like, why is working on symptoms and being kinder to yourself in two different categories? Yes. Right. <laughs> right. It's so fun, right? When you watch people start to weave these yeah. in their minds, disparate things when they start weaving them together, it's the best. It's amazing. Um, if there's a person listening who is in that very stage where they're like, this all sounds great, but what might your words of encouragement be to the person who's at that point in the journey that we've all been at? Thank you for asking this. Cause I, when, especially when two recovered people, and again, even the word recovered, like what is that? But two people out of chronic pain are talking. We now I'll speak for myself, but I think we're, I, I can, I'm hearing that you feel this way as well at least some of the time when my pain talks to me now, it's a clear signal. When my pain talks to me now, I'm grateful for it. That was not always the case. So I want to say to anyone actively in the throes of constant pain, constant fear, constant pain, constant fear, constant fear. Constant fear it's so noisy. The radio static of fear is so loud. You can't distinguish noise from signal. Like now, if my pain comes on and it hasn't been on, that is a signal. It is telling me something's happening and I can listen. When I was in chronic pain, it's, it's all just noisy mess. So if you feel like not, I don't understand how to apply this because it's constant. It's coming from every angle, achieve safety, whatever, nothing feels safe. My body feels like a prison or like a fire. I want to, I want to offer you, you do not, that it doesn't need to make sense yet. Like I trust and believe you can get to a place where more of this conversation resonates, but it does not need to make sense right now. What we know, what we compare all of this down to is pain is a danger signal. So the more threat input that goes in, the more pain output goes out. So anything that you do, turn the volume down on the fear, anything from any part of your life in your body. If you're responding to the sensation with a greater sense of calmness or ease in your life, if you're showing up in relationships with more confidence, 
or a, a sense of safety at your job. Think of all the puzzle pieces of your life. If, if you're working any single one of them to reduce the fear level or to increase the confidence, empowerment, safety level, if you're working any piece of the puzzle, you are doing something productive. So don't worry about how it all fits together. Go spend a little bit of time on this corner and then shift and go work on the other and then go to the middle. And at some point, the puzzle kind of starts to meet in the middle and that's when things will make more sense. But be totally fine if huge swaths of this conversation or any other conversations that you're listening to, podcasts, books, whatever programs that you're in, let it not make sense and just keep working your corner. I love how that message just takes the pressure off the process and acknowledges that it is a process and processes have many stages and feeling grateful for or understanding your pain at the beginning of the process is not an appropriate expectation to have at that yeah. stage. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. And Christy, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for the voice and the work that you bring into this field. It makes such a difference to me personally, and I know it does for so many people. I'm just so grateful to have your voice in this field and to get to speak with you personally. Um, where can folks find you and what sorts of things can they find you for? I'd love for people to find me. That'd be fun to connect. So uh, you can find my team at bettermindcenter.com. If you're looking for one-on-one -on -one help, I probably could have talked for an hour about how obsessed I am with the team. They're just, I learn stuff from them every single day. So if you're interested in that, bettermindcenter.com is a place to go. To connect with me and I'm um, happy to connect with on messages or in comments. I'm on Instagram, better with Christy, better dot with dot Christy. Um, and there you'll be able to act like I'm happy to connect with people one-on-one, -on -one, share stories or share support and just on there chattering away. So glad for people to connect there as well. And I'll put those in the show notes. Of course, there's some great videos on Christy's Instagram. So highly recommend you, uh, travel over there and Christy, thank you again. It was so great to speak with you. You have created such a, I mean, I have just felt so warm and supported by you through this experience, I've really been looking forward to talking with you, but just the experience itself felt really supportive. I just thank you so much. That's the best thing I could possibly hear. Thank you so much. Hey friends, it's Anna. Let me ask you something. If you're struggling with chronic symptoms, have you ever felt like pulling your hair out and screaming, why the bleep am I still in pain? That's definitely what I was asking earlier on in my recovery, so I can totally empathize and I would love to help you get some clarity. So I've created a quiz just for you that's called, Why the Bleep Am I Still in Pain? And yes, you can take this quiz even if your symptoms are not pain specifically. Just head to my website, annaholtzman.com, and you'll see a big old button there that says, Take the Quiz. So why don't you head there right now before you forget? And if you found this episode helpful, please go rate and review the podcast. That helps other people who are struggling with chronic symptoms too to find the podcast. And I would appreciate it enormously. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take good care.